The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Dan Wolkin from USA Today. He's a columnist and national college sports reporter. He broke a big story last night. He broke the story that Justin Fields intends to transfer from Georgia, the star freshman quarterback. We'll talk to Dan about Fields, the transfer rules, what this could mean to Georgia, waiver rules, and everything that sort of goes into that story. But we'll also talk about a grab bag of other topics like playoff expansion, players skipping bowl games, and we'll get a last review on the coaching carousel and whether it might pick up again with NFL teams interested in college coaches. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is Dan Wolkin from USA Today. And Dan had a big scoop last night. Justin Fields, a star freshman quarterback, a five-star recruit from just this past season, intends to transfer from Georgia. Now, I was able to to sort of match the story, and as of right now, we are recording this at 11.36 a.m. on Tuesday. doesn't sound like anything has changed. It is not official yet. Fields is not in the transfer database, so there's some formalities that still need to go on here. But where does this go from here, Dan? Yeah, so just to put a little bit more of a specific twist on it, uh, he put in his intent to transfer, I was told, on Friday. So that gives the school 48 hours, or I guess more officially two business days to actually then forward that request into the NCAA transfer portal. This is all a new system, by the way, right? This is yeah. just open just, in October. Just up and running, yep. Yeah, so that's the way it works. It's basically the the kid has to go to the school and say – I want to transfer. I'm filling out this form with the compliance office, and then the compliance office has to go log it in the database. So at that point, once it goes in there, uh, then basically any school will be allowed to contact him. And so the as of the recording of this podcast, uh, midday Tuesday, my understanding is that the name will or is supposed to be entered into the database by the end of the day. At that point, it will show up there and he'll be officially a free agent, you know, and then where it goes from there. I, look, if you put your name in the database, uh, you're you're a transfer, right? I mean, maybe you can come back. There have been people who have gone and come back before. Uh, but once you're in the database, you're a transfer. And so at that point, it'll be a free for all and, and maybe one of the most intriguing transfers ever, given the high profile of this kid. Right. And there has been like one of the one of the discussions around the database process 
was how long does the school have to enter the name? And and that sounds like just bureaucracy, but it's somewhat important because the idea was that as soon as that kid's name is in, we can take his scholarship. That's it. He's off of scholarship for us and he can get a scholarship for somewhere else. But there was some discussion about, hey, like, do we want to give a kid a couple of days to think about it? Do we want to give the school a couple of days to change the kid's mind? The timetable on that was not something that was just thrown out there. That was discussed about like how long do we want this process between, hey, I've filled out my form and I've submitted it, and now I'm in the portal to last. So there were some technicalities around that that were not just done you know, flippantly. Well, I think it's probably a little bit of give and take because if you remember in the old system and the reason the old system had to go, frankly, is what would happen all the time is kids would come in to the coach's office or to compliance or whoever they wanted to tell and say, listen, I, I want to transfer. I want to get what was called notification to contact, right? Yeah. Permi- permission. Called? Well, now, now it's notification. Yeah. Now it, it right. was permission. Now it's notification. Right. So, so what they would do a lot of times is these coaches would say, okay, well, we're going to give you your permission to contact, but you're not going to be allowed the permission from any schools in the sec or ACC or anyone on our schedule in the next five years or whatever it was. Right. And it turned into this thing. And then sometimes they would slow play it. Sometimes they would hold it. It just turned into a bit of a game, frankly, because the coaches had all the power. So in, I think, exchange for the athletes having more of their own destiny in their hands with this process, that 48-hour window, I think, is is the kind of give and take part where, all right, everyone's going to take a breath. If you really want to go through with this, we'll put it in, but just give us 48 hours to – or, you know, two business days to, to – uh, figure this out. Having said that, Ralph, I mean, it's been at this point, uh, what, 16 hours since my story first posted. Uh, there's been zero pushback or denial on mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think we can all kind of see where this is probably heading. Okay. So now the other interesting part about this story that, again, you broke, and I think we're everybody else is sort of scrambling to catch up with is that. Justin Fields would not be doing this if he did not think there was at least a decent chance he could get a waiver to play next year. I should, well, no, I, I, let, me, let me pair that back. It is reasonable to think that Justin Fields believes he has a chance to get a waiver next year to play immediately, right? I, I, I don't think there's any Correct. doubt about that. So that's a whole new set of circumstances that are uh, trickling down from the NCAA transfer rules. Why does he have a better chance of getting a waiver that maybe he would have a year ago? Well, there, there's two things that sort of combine in concert here. One, the NCAA has just frankly been more lenient with, with waivers. Uh, they've just given out a lot of them. And some of them have kind of been unexplained. Now, obviously, the Shea Patterson situation with Michigan, uh, you know, Van Jefferson at Florida, that was very highly publicized because it stemmed from the Ole Miss case and – the bowl ban and all this stuff, right? We all know about that. There's other ones that have been more mysterious. Like we don't really know. And in fact, one of them benefited Georgia, which was Demetrius Robertson. Mm -hmm. When he transferred from Cal to Georgia was eligible immediately. And no one ever really explained why. 
I mean, I never heard a good answer for why the NCAA granted him a waiver, but they did. And it all goes back to this very vague uh, rule they put in earlier this year that says, paraphrasing, if the student athlete is uh, involved in mitigating circumstances beyond their control that negatively impacts their health, welfare, well-being, whatever, that they can apply to get this waiver and play right away. And that's a pretty wide berth. And in the Justin Fields case, there was this highly publicized incident from September where during the Tennessee game, a student in the stands who happened to be a baseball player was heard saying a racial slur, calling Justin Fields or referring to Justin Fields by a a racially charged name. And this incident went public. It received a lot of national attention and eventually the baseball player or not eventually pretty quickly, the baseball player got thrown out of school Mm -hmm. once they um, verified that it was him. And, you know, I think that's as grounds for a waiver of of something that impacts your health and well-being and safety and all that stuff. Look, I don't think anyone's going to be in a real position, strong position to argue that, that to argue against that is grounds for for a waiver. I really don't. Here's the thing. The, the NCAA has a very flawed transfer rule when it says you have to sit out a year. It doesn't attach or tether to academics in any way. It treats athletes differently than it does regular students. That's always a problem for them legally. And again, it has no it has no attachment to Academics. They've tried to. They've tried to get the transfer rules in line with academic support. So, okay, we're doing this because we see these things academically benefit the students. And they've just struggled with it. They've struggled to be able to do that. The rule that makes players have to sit out is a competitiveness rule. Competitiveness rules in college sports are problematic for college sports because the whole defense of college sports is we're not a league. We're not a professional league. We don't want to be bound by competition rules here. This is a, an extracurricular activity. So I say all that, all that background to say that that's the reason why there's not, I think they're, they're becoming a lot more lenient with these waivers. So you're right. We can argue back and forth whether like that incident is worthy of a waiver. But the fact of the matter is, I just think the NCAA doesn't really want to bog itself down with these waivers anymore. It wants to give kids a lot more leeway because it knows it has a hard time defending the rule in the first place. Publicly, the narrative and the opinion has really turned. And I think a lot of it boils down to the common phrase, you know, if the coaches can leave without sitting out a year, why can't the players? And a lot of people have kind of bought into that. And we can talk about coaches contracts and penalties for getting out of contracts and all that. But there is some validity to this idea that that every coach in the country has has freedom of movement and players do not. And I think the NCAA has now come around to a viewpoint of all right, if you want to transfer and play right away, give us a good reason and we'll just accept it. And the other part of that too, which was written, was written into those, uh, I, I can't even say it's a rule. It's almost like a guideline, guideline that they, yeah, yeah, that, they that, that they decided to tweak was if both schools are okay with it. 
too, right? I mean, I think that, that part of the reason why they wanted to open this up a little bit is because they realized in the Shea Patterson situation, they were heading towards a fight between Michigan and Ole Miss. Ole Miss didn't want to admit that it dealt in an unfair way with Shea Patterson. They didn't want to have to defend themselves that, like, no, our coaches lied to Patterson about the investigation. Like, it wasn't even a matter of, like, the NCAA didn't want that playing out in public, right? They didn't want to have that situation where where Ole Miss was never going to say, like, okay, it's fine, Patterson's right, we lied to him. So they were absolutely going to have to defend themselves. So I think this is another way of the NCAA saying it'll come down to that to a certain degree, too. If Georgia just doesn't want to deal with this and says, you know what, Justin, just go. Just, like, go transfer and be and, and God bless you. That's another way that this could work in Fields' favor in that they're setting this up, the NCAA, more so that they don't want confrontations about this. Well, right. And and so let's just play this out a little bit further. And this is not reporting. I'm just speculating. Could I see a situation where Georgia says, we won't fight this. We'll support you in your in your waiver if you want to play right right away, Justin. But don't go to Auburn. Right. You know, don't go to right. Alabama. Right. Right. Don't go to LSU. Now, if you want to go to Ohio State, if you want to go to Oklahoma, it's a different story. Yeah. They're not on the schedule. Yeah. But yeah, have a good time at Penn State, which he was committed to at one point. Right. But but please don't come in our backyard. Yeah. I, I could see something like that happening too, and and. You know, that's sort of a healthy way probably to deal with some of this. I mean, look, I think kids should have the right and opportunity to to go where they want without a lot of friction. But um, given where the process was, this is an improvement. And look, like you said, whether the, the situation with the racial slur is really the reason behind his transfer or not, um, who are we or is anyone to argue that something like that blowing up into a big national story didn't have a negative impact on an 18, 19 year old kid who frankly was already having a pretty tough year. Yeah. Uh, Right. And the other part of that is who wants to play that out publicly? Who wants to be on the other? Yeah. What does Georgia or the NCAA want to be on the other side of that, of taking that stance against a kid who only wants to go play football? Right, that's that's essentially what you're holding him back from. He's not hurting you in any way. He just wants to go play football. There's another one other piece of this story because I think people will say, well, if he were to leave and doesn't get the waiver, let's just play that out because there's no guarantee. I think there's probably a good shot, but there's no guarantee he gets the waiver. Then you know he's going somewhere else and sitting out a year. And why not just sit out of Georgia a year and then become the starter when Fromm leaves after in the 2020? I think what people have to sort of get their heads around to a certain degree is Justin Fields left high school, I'm sure, thinking, I am going to be in the 2020 draft, right? And to be in the 2020 draft with only one year of starting experience is not a good deal for him. That could cost him a lot of money. So I guess the possibility he and his family have to weigh is, what's the chances we get the waiver? Eh, pretty good. What's the chances if I stay at Georgia, I'll get to play? And I think right now the chances he gets a waiver and plays somewhere else are probably better than staying at Georgia and basically hoping Fromm gets hurt. 
that's the decision I think I think is again my analysis is that's the decision that that family probably has to weigh. Well, and who's to say Jake Fromm is going to leave after next year? I mean, I don't think there's any, frankly, legitimate consensus that Jake Fromm is like a big-time NFL prospect. Now, look, I mean, he may have a chance to play in the NFL, but like to say it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to play next year at Georgia and then enter the draft, I think is, I think is assuming a lot. He could be very well be a four-year college player. He could very well be a four-year college player on his own volition that, you know, he's, he's going to be playing with great players. will have chances to win the title. So the idea that, that Justin Fields would just ascend to the starting position in 2019, I'm sorry, in 2020 is full of conjecture that, that may not turn out to be the case. Yeah. And I said, 2020 draft, I meant 2021 draft, right? He he's got to play three years. And again, that's like when you're the number one quarterback recruit in the country, that's what your plan is. Your plan is to get to college and be out in three years. And again, not playing because you could say, well, okay, let's again, let's assume he gets that one year at Georgia where he goes off and is the starting quarterback in 2020. But like that means he'll only have 12 games of starting experience or maybe 13 or 14 or 15 games. And like that could be a negative drag on his value because there's a whole bunch of data that says the quarterbacks who jump to the league, the ones who struggle tend to be the ones with less experience, right? You know, the, the, the one year starters are the guys that they have, they're usually most leery of. Now that may be changing, but tends to be that the ones that have a lot of experience are the ones who tend to work out in the long run. So that's all in the calculation here. And there's a ton of uncertainty here for Justin Fields. But he's also weighing that uncertainty with, okay, what's the better chances of me being able to get two years of tape as a starter? And that's fascinating to me and how that plays out. And let me me interject one more thing uh, on this. The thinking around the whole situation from the Fields camp may have been different if he was used differently. I I mean, frankly, it's hard to tell – just watching a kid who gets kind of a handful of snaps per game uh, in in very specific situational uh, formations and packages, it's hard to tell kind of what that would mean if you extrapolate it out. Mm-hmm. But I know this, the Justin Fields that we saw in the limited sample size for Georgia is not the Justin Fields that he was purported to be as a high school player. I mean, yes, he's a dual threat quarterback, but what made him such a special prospect was his ability to throw the ball. Everybody said that everybody who is a scout who follows recruiting, who watched him in high school, that he was an elite passer. Mm -hmm. And so Georgia tried to force feed him into the, into the game at times to run zone read for three random plays in a game mm-hmm. like that just wasn't it didn't make him look good you know right no that's a that's a bad well especially it's when you're talking long-term value right and especially when you factor in like some quarterbacks especially black and agile and mobile quarterbacks get pigeonholed as you're not the passer you're some in some ways a runner or, or a system quarterback so that I would imagine would factor into Justin Field calculations listen the elite 11 guys you know Yogi Roth and Trent Dilfer that bunch they called Justin Fields the best player they had ever ever coached in that system. 
Uh, he, he was getting talked about as the best player to come through that system. All the great players, you know, over the last you know ten or fifteen years that that thing's been going on, and Justin Fields was getting talked about as the best one. So you don't get that if you're just the mobile quarterback. He right, he was billed as an elite passer, and you're right. If you're going to basically be the wildcat quarterback, then that's not really helping you. They just didn't have a very good plan for him, and. Look, I would have played Jake Fromm too. Jake Fromm's a stud. Jake Fromm, right, right. Is, right. This is, is not a knock reason. on Georgia, right? No. They did what they needed to do to win. Yeah, they just didn't have a great idea of how they wanted to use Fields and what to do with him and how to work him in. And so this is where we are. And you know, in retrospect, maybe he should have gone to a different school. He probably should have. But now you move on. And and I mean, heck, if you're him at this point, the world's your oyster. Every school who's Every school, I'm sure, will inquire, and then you've got a bunch of schools who are going to have wide-open quarterback competitions, uh, including you know Ohio State, Oklahoma, some of these places where he could slide right in. I think it's a pretty – I don't think it's a bad time to be Justin Fields, let's put it that way. <laughs> Definitely. All right, listen, we went long on that. I want to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll go a little faster through a few other topics. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dan Wolkin from USA Today. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo from AP. I'm talking with Dan Wolkin from USA Today. We just talked a lot about the Justin Fields situation and, and transfers and whatnot. The other big news that sort of happened today, and, and Jim Delaney told Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic that he was ready to start talking about playoff expansion, possibly as much as eight teams. I have a hard time figuring out how big a deal this is, but I do think it's significant that one of the five most powerful people when it comes to the playoff, the, the Power Five commissioners, decides that, yeah, you know, I want to at least start having the conversation about making this thing bigger. What's your take on what this means that Delaney sort of says this, this stuff publicly? One of the funny things, and I haven't really talked a lot about this yet, but one of the funny things that I've observed in this whole idea, this whole conversation about playoff expansion is like everyone acknowledges that at some point it will happen, and yet nobody really kind of wants to be the person to like make it happen. It's like, yeah, well, we'll have to think about this eventually. We'll have to talk about this eventually. Like that's kind of what Bob Bowlesby says, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, We'll have to talk about this eventually. But why? Like, why can't you talk about it now? Why can't you? If, if you wanted to do it, you can do it. What I've always questioned with the current group of commissioners is, especially given their age and the fact that, that Delaney, Bowlesby, Swafford, realistically, none of them are going to be in their jobs in five years or so. I've sort of questioned whether they want to be the ones to do the work that it's going to take to overhaul the system. Yeah. And it will take work. It's going to take a, a schedule, calendar change, the bowls, contracts, and a lot of things are going to have to be redone. Uh, I don't think it's something that you can do like just at the snap of your fingers. It'll take a couple, three years to transition into a different system. So I, I think we're – a lot of these guys will leave it is they'll they'll start the conversation and then leave leave it to the next generation to actually implement it uh but i could be wrong they they may get in that room in january and decide hey um let's let's just go to eight although i don't get the sense that that is really 
the way that this is going to go down. Yeah, I, I kind of agree like a thousand percent on what you're what you said. My standard line has been the playoff will change when the people change, which is essentially a condensed version of what you said. Like, I just I'm not sure there's a ton of motivation to do the dirty work here. I always get into this argument with Andy Staples from SI. He's like, no, nah, it doesn't take that much work. It's just a couple of meetings. I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, like we can poo poo all the reasons, but there's a certain amount of consensus building and planning and logistics here that will actually take work to figure out, Okay, where exactly are you going to play these games? Are you going to play them on campus in the middle of December when there are no students around? And it's one thing to play a playoff game in the middle of December at Ohio State with an 80,000 seat stadium and the infrastructure or 90,000 seat stadium, the infrastructure to, to, to stage a huge playoff game and all that that occurs with that. It's another thing to sort of say, we'll do it at Indiana. Now you say it doesn't matter. Indiana is never going to make the playoff, but they have to be on board, too. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so many constituencies here, even the ones that will never be in the playoff that still have to be on board. And that will take some time and some work. And I just don't know if you're right. Like John Swafford really wants to do all that work. That work. I mean, th- these guys have other jobs. Like th- just running the playoff is not their main job. Well, there's also the academic component to figure out, you know, are these games going to be during finals? How do you deal with that? Uh, there's also uh, you'd have to renegotiate your television contracts is – ESPN, how much more money are they going to be willing to spend or whoever else uh, on this thing? It's uh, it's a little bit messier than some people want to admit, and it will take a lot of heavy lifting. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I think, look, if they wanted to just buckle down and do it, they could do it. Uh, I just think that they're, they're going to have to massage this. It's going to have to take place over time. Uh I think you could very well see the conversation starting, but no real change for a few years. And then he, the format doesn't change till the actual end of the 12 year deal. Like that's certainly the way it could play out. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it was two years ahead of time when they were very close to pretty much nailing down the playoff that they actually implemented the playoff. So now we're seven years out from the end of this deal. If they start talking about, I mean, right. I mean, it could line up very easily so that they make these changes, but they don't happen until the contract's up. I would still lean towards that. You know, the other thing is, listen, I understand it's only going to be two teams or maybe four teams that are playing extra games or, but if you're talking about adding two more games to the championship and now these guys are playing 16 games, I mean, good luck selling that without giving these players any more. And in the day and age of CTE, I mean, it's just I understand that it could be done. I understand we're only asking two teams to play two more games, but there's a sell job that has to come with that. And again, you have a lot of constituencies out there that have to be happy before this happens. Well, and if you ask... Dabo Sweeney, if you ask Urban Meyer, if you ask Nick Saban, you know, guys who've been through the playoff multiple times, they'll tell you that if you make that championship game, you've got a tired, beat up football team by the end of it. Because you get in the playoff, you're essentially facing two physical elite teams in a span of 10 days. And that that takes it out of you as a college team. So uh, I think that's definitely something to consider. You're going to add a third 
game against another really good physical team, uh, that, that's got some implications that uh, – I'm not sure everybody will be happy with. Yeah, and, and talk about the end of the season too. So you've already you've already burned through a lot of your roster anyway. Let me because I don't want to keep you too much longer, Dan. Let, let me wrap up the go back to the coaching carousel. We saw two sixty five plus coaches hired, three guys who were out of coaching. If you consider you freeze to to FBS, uh, we saw no sitting head football coaches from power five teams change jobs was there anything about this carousel it seemed a little weird and it sort of stopped suddenly because again there wasn't a lot of sitting coach movement was there anything that stood out to you about this past carousel well the kind of nostalgia angle (laughs) the, uh, the boosters controlling the process angle which played out at north carolina to a degree certainly played out at Utah State. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there were a couple others where it, it was fairly obvious uh, that that schools were kind of going for reaching back into the past, I guess, to, to try to generate excitement. Even Kansas, to a degree, with Les Miles, I think, you know, that was obviously something Jeff Long was very much on board with, but uh, the boosters sort of cheerleading mm-hmm. that all the way. So... The revenge of the boosters to me was kind of a theme of, of the cycle. Are we done? I mean, th- there is this constant noise. It's really been since before this season, the noise around NFL teams might have more desire to kick the tires on college coaches. It stems to the NFL teams more implementing college offenses. I also think it's part and parcel of agents knowing that there weren't going to be a lot of good college jobs open up here. So they needed leverage and they wanted to sort of pump up their guys for NFL jobs. Uh, Cause and again, it's been going on for months and months, not just recently. Do you think that there is another wave coming here where the cliff, well, cliff Kingsbury, which is a weird one because he just got fired from Texas tech. And now we're talking about him as an NFL head coach candidate. That seems nuts and bizarre. But Lincoln Riley, Matt Rule, Matt Campbell, those are three of the names that seems to come up a lot. Are we are we in for a part two of the cycle here? Okay, so we all know the NFL loves kind of the smartest guy in the room thing. And like, for instance, right, when Deshaun Watson went to the NFL, uh, everyone who follows college football is like, oh, my God, Deshaun Watson is so awesome. Like Deshaun Watson is going to be a great pro you know, and then you go through the cycle and everyone's like, I don't know about Deshaun Watson. And then, you know, then he hits in the NFL and it's like, you know, well, you know, the smart guys really knew he was going to be great. <laughs> right. So it's kind of the same thing with coaches. Um, you know, there's a little bit of that going on because everyone's in love with the spread offenses now. And as I've said before, I, just from a dollars and cents standpoint, if you're drafting quarterbacks in the first round, you need to play them. You need to get value out of them, and you need to get value out of them early. You can't just put them on the shelf for two years and let them collect dust because it screws up your salary cap. Like, you got to play these guys. And so what makes sense in that context will be to put an offense in front of them that they are comfortable with and that they understand. So, And then you see somebody like Mahomes who goes out early and thrives in it. It, it just – like it, it totally lines up a, as a trend. So yeah, like there's a chance NFL could look at college guys 
and say, let's get some of that. But who and would they actually do it? And are they going to outsmart themselves? I mean, the idea that Cliff Kingsbury could go from being fired at Texas Tech to an NFL head coach seems kind of preposterous. Uh, but there are a couple guys who, who I think could draw some interest. And, and will it cause movement? That's it's a really interesting question. Yeah, it'll be fun to see. Because, but listen, and you know, if the Oklahoma job opens up, that's one of the prime jobs I, in the in the country, right? And I, I think that's one of the reasons why. And I, that that's I, one. Of, yeah, that's one of the reasons why Lincoln might stay. It's such a great job. Yeah, you. There's a th- school of thought. Okay, you go to the NFL, you can get fired, and then you come back, and you can get a, another great college job, and you probably can, but you're not getting the Oklahoma job again. Like something would have to line up just perfectly. Oklahoma doesn't open very often. Ohio State and USC, they don't open very often. Like So I, I would be hesitant to give up uh, something like Oklahoma uh, because, yeah, when you've got it rolling, that's a very, very good place to coach. Hey, last thing, I, I want to squeeze it in here, and that is more players than ever are sitting out of bowl games. Super high-profile college players like Ed Oliver, Greedy Williams, these are All-America-type talents. This is now just something that's going to happen. My question to you is, the NCAA loves to go chasing problems that only affect a very small percentage of the sport because that's essentially what they've been doing with one and done in basketball, right? Chasing their tail over like you know, 10 players. Do you s- suspect there is any way they could, the NCAA could, and I'm uh, air quoting here, address the problem of players sitting out bowl games boy i certainly hope not um (laughs) when all this started you know my my take on it was is it going to be a trend it may be a trend is it a trend that like really hurts anybody no i don't think so i mean (laughs) yeah that's the other thing too like who is getting who who doesn't benefit here except for maybe the guys who run the sun bowl yeah but that but again (laughs) like is someone going to make a choice to travel to El Paso or Tucson or wherever to go to a bowl game based on one or two star players? No. I mean, I just like the reason people go to these games and the reason they follow their, their programs and, and, and go to bowl games is because they enjoy watching their team and they enjoy making a trip out of it. And they enjoy being around other fans of their school because you go to one of those cities and you take over the city and it's a big party. Like that's what it's about. And people either choose or don't choose to, to, to go based on that. Um, because most of the, unless you're in a playoff game, I mean, a lot of these bowl games are between seven and five teams. Like we know that it doesn't matter all that much. So I just, who's it hurting? I, I don't, I don't get who's harmed here. And, I just think people look out for themselves and do what's best for for their career and don't feel like playing in a bowl game really matters to them. Who am I to argue that? Dan Wilkin from USA Today joining me today on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Dan, uh, you will be at the Orange Bowl. I will be at the Cotton Bowl, but most likely we will cross paths in Northern California, correct? Yes, sir. I will be there uh, January 4th. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. We'll grab dinner. All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. And uh, happy holidays to you. Thanks, Ralph. And now three and out. First down. I'm starting to wonder if Coach of the Year awards are even necessary. Bear with me here. 
Coach of the Year generally goes to a coach whose team exceeds expectations. Hence, Brian Kelly being voted AP Coach of the Year this week ahead of Nick Saban, who finished second in the voting. It's like this in every sport from college to pro. Kelly won two other National Coach of the Year awards, and I think that's a solid choice. I thought Kelly did a good job this season. But Nick Saban could probably win the Coach of the Year award every year at this point. Uh, Maybe Dabo Sweeney, too. You know, Ohio State has not had a Coach of the Year in the Big Ten in about 30 years. Saban has won two AP Coach of the Year awards, both times after his teams in 2003 with LSU and 2008 with Alabama exceeded preseason expectations. So unlike players, there are no decent stats or metrics to assess coaching on a yearly basis. You can't really separate coaching from recruiting in college because recruiting is pretty much the name of the game when it comes to college coaching. There are some analysts who are trying to quantify coaches and the effects they have on their teams, but nothing that I look at as reliable data, at least not yet. I'm guessing Coach of the Year awards won't go away, but I find myself thinking maybe we should just punt the whole idea. Second down. We had our signing day preview last week with Mike Farrell from Rivals, and we are the day before the early signing period starts, so I'm sure I'll post that on my Twitter feed, and you can pick that up when you listen to this podcast. It's just the next one in the line. But since then, since we had that preview with Mike Farrell, Oregon added one of the best prospects in the country, defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau of Southern California. This just about ensures the Ducks will have a top 10 class when this cycle is over in February. Listen, the Pac-12 has a bunch of issues right now that have left it positioned to be the fifth out of five Power 5 conferences when it comes to college football. And Commissioner Larry Scott is the target of much criticism and consternation. But there are some things far out of Scott's control that would help the Pac-12 a lot. Oregon getting really good is one of them. Next, USC getting its act together would be a big boost to the Pac-12. We'll see how that works out in Clay Helton's extreme makeover season. Chip Kelly brings hope that UCLA finally stops tripping over itself. Chris Peterson is doing his part at Washington. Conference perception starts at the top, and that means the schools with the highest ceilings have to be hitting those ceilings. Oregon seems to be moving in that direction under Mario Cristobal. Third down, a shout out to a few players who won't show up on any All-America teams but are worthy of praise. There is a new award in college football, the Mayo Clinic Comeback Player of the Year. The AP provides some assistance in that award with voting. The FBS winner is Antoine Dixon, a receiver from Kent State who returned to football this year after two years away because of a blood disorder. Dixon needed a bone marrow transplant. He came back this year and led the team in receiving. The FCS winner is Dartmouth defensive lineman Seth Simmer. He missed a full season of college football and almost two years of college after having surgery to remove a brain tumor that caused him to go deaf in his left ear. The lower division winner was Antoine Wimbush of Carson Newman, who ran for more than 1,200 yards this season after blowing out his knee having an ACL tear last season. He was healthy and ready to go at the start of this season and had a great year, averaged 8 yards per carry. Congratulations to all of you for your perseverance. It's a great award, and AP's happy to be part of it. 
That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. As always, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.